I'll be reading from 1 Kings 17, uh, beginning in verse 17. 1 Kings 17, 17. Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. And his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, What do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. And he said to her, Give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. And he called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's life return to him. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child returned to him, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. We'll pray. God, I'm just thankful again for your word, which guides us and leads us, God, always into the truth. And Lord, our thoughts are so often um, below you, unworthy of you. We pray that as we look at your word, as we've also been singing, that our minds and our hearts, God, would be um, elevated to all that is worthy of you and true of you. We pray that you would minister to us, God, and that we would yield in faith and obedience to all that you say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. <clears throat> there is no book of the Bible that I have taught more often than 1 Kings. Um, it's my privilege to teach it probably at least three times a year for the last 35 years. Sometimes up to six times a year. So I did the math and that means somewhere between 100 and 200 times now that I've gone through this book. And I always um, learn from it. God continues to teach me and show me things that I hadn't seen before, which is always true with God's Word. It remains very fresh to me. But there's no passage of anything I think that I teach that has more pushback than this one. And so either um, it is a very important passage or I am very wrong in how I handle it. You'll have to be the, the judge on that. This last week, since Sunday, I've been up in Colorado teaching at one of the Torchbearer Bible Schools. Very quiet group of students, which is unusual for that particular school. Um, almost no questions during class the whole week. Lots of questions after class, but not during. Except when I came to this passage. And just hands go up. And that's always the way it is. So... Here's the deal. Elijah's been with this woman, this widow in Zarephath, for a long time. Long enough that her son probably has become like a son to Elijah. Two miracles a day, every day. And then suddenly, surprisingly, shockingly, the boy dies. Kind of think it'd be the last boy on the planet that would die. 
because Elijah is living in the home and God is doing miracles every day in this home. And then the boy just up and dies. And the mom, her response here is not surprising. But where I take this is not surprising, but very, very wrong, very inaccurate in what she's saying about God. Her response is, what do I have to do with you, O man of God? And here it is. You have come to bring, you have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. Is she right? Is she wrong? A.W. Tozer says the most important thing in any person, the most important thing about any person is what he believes in his heart to be true about God. And one way that we find out what's in our hearts is how we respond to crisis. And this is definitely a crisis. My grandmother, as I, you've probably heard me say, had 12 children. Six of them died before they were teenagers. Was this God bringing her iniquity to remembrance and putting her children to death? Should my grandmother have lived all those years going from my sin, God killed my children? That's what this woman's saying. Job was the most upright and blameless man on the planet. And all ten of his children were wiped out at one time. And it had nothing to do with his sin. Years ago now, um, those of you that are in the church for a long time, you'll remember because you walked through this with my family, with me and Patsy. Our firstborn, Nathan, was about 11 months old and um, got a little fever. And the little fever became a major fever. And when we, after we'd put him down to bed, knowing he had a slight fever, we went and checked on him before we went to bed, and the slight fever had become a major fever. It was over 105. And he was breathing 60 times a minute. <sighs> Patsy being a nurse, she was timing it. So we couldn't even get Tylenol in him to lower the fever. Young parents, first-time parents, and I held him in my arms and I said, Jesus, please calm his breathing so we can pour the Tylenol down him. And he immediately calmed down. Breathing went normal. We got the Tylenol in him. And very rapidly the fever um, was greatly reduced. Next morning, we went to check on him, 6 in the morning, and he's almost dead in his crib. So Patsy scooped him up and rushed him to the emergency room in Kerrville, our pediatrician came in, he was an old godly man, um, and then I got the phone call that he wanted to do a spinal tap. And so I rushed over. The nurses were in a panic. They did not want to be around my son. They were afraid that they were all going to get meningitis. And so I had to hold Nathan down, feet hanging off the edge of the bed, head between his feet, so that the doctor could get a good jab into his spine with this huge needle. Spinal taps, one of the most painful procedures that can be done. And he barely whimpered. So I knew this was not good. When the spinal fluid came out, it was all cloudy. 
I'd never seen spinal fluid, but the doctor said it shouldn't be this way. It ought to be just crystal clear like water. He said, Charles, we still have to run some tests. In the meantime, we're going to put him in an ambulance and send him, send him to the Methodist Hospital to their intensive care unit, pediatric intensive care unit. And I'm still not getting how bad it is. And he recognized that. So this fine Christian doctor put his hands on my shoulder and said, you're not getting this. It's very likely your son's going to die. Now I got it. And I can tell you, my very first thought was, because of my sin. So I relate to this woman. And I want you to hear that everything I say this morning is not out of a hard heart. Because I've been there. We didn't lose our son. He was 10 days in intensive care and God spared his life. He's still deaf in one ear. Um, But otherwise, he's been extremely healthy his whole life. And we're very, very thankful. But for those 10 days that he was in intensive care, for most of it, every moment I had, because Patsy was down at the hospital most of the time, my mom was there with her, and um, I couldn't be there the whole time, so whenever I was at home, I was on the floor. And I was saying, God, whatever it is, forgive me. Nobody is without sin. And so I know that I'm not without sin. But I could not think of the sin that would be putting my son to death. But nonetheless, my first thought was, this is happening because of me. God, forgive me and heal my son. I would venture to say this is probably in the majority of us. This thought that God kills innocent children because of our sin. There's actually two things I think that this woman is saying. The first is, God brings our iniquity to remembrance. And then the second statement is, He is prepared to kill our innocent children as punishment for our sin. So two things she's saying. So I want to um, approach it from that way and just deal with the first issue first. That God brings our iniquity to remembrance. Do you believe that? How do you respond when the crisis, when the bad things, when the tragedies hit? Let me just quote some verses to you from Colossians 2, 13 and 14. God has forgiven our transgressions and canceled their certificate of debt against us. From Isaiah 43, 25, He does not remember our sin. From Psalm 102, verse 25, He has separated our sin from Him as far as the east is from the west. That's pretty far. From Isaiah 38, 17, He has cast all our sins behind His back. In Romans 5, 1, we have been justified by faith in Christ. And we have peace with God. And in the next verse, therefore, we can exalt in our tribulations, knowing that our tribulations bring about perseverance, and perseverance proven 
character. I want us just to look, if you would, with me at that passage, Romans 5. This has become one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith. So first we have to understand what justification is. It means the complete removal of our sin and absolute right standing before God. It is a legal term. I've been told that in old England, after a person had been sentenced to hang for his sins, for his crimes, that once he was good and dead, they would hang a sign around his neck saying, justified. Well, it's a little late, but you get the idea. This man has paid for his sin. He cannot be punished again for that sin. That sin has been absolutely paid for. So legally, he is justified because his sin has been paid for. Does him no good because he's dead. In our case, Jesus took that death. And we have been declared by the just God justified. In Romans chapter 3, it raises the question, how can he be just and justifier of the unrighteous? Or if you just say, how can he be the just justifier of the unjust and remain just? Well, he has to justify the unjust to remain just. Follow all that? There's no way for a just God to justify the unrighteous, the unjust, except in Jesus Christ, who took the punishment for our sin. And he took it so completely that we have peace with God. This is not the peace of God. That's emotional. This is peace with God. That's positional. It means there is no problem. God sees us as being as righteous as Jesus Christ is. God cannot remain just and punish the justified. We have been justified. So he cannot remain just and punish us for sin, which has been paid for. And this is so profound and such an absolute for Paul that he says, that truth causes me to exalt in three things. I exalt, he says in the next verse, um, in the hope of the glory of God. So Paul's saying, because I am absolutely positive that I have right standing with God and I can never be punished for the sin which Jesus paid for, which is all my sin. I am so absolutely convinced of that. Paul says, I do not live my life like this widow did thinking sooner or later I am going to get what I deserve. Paul says, I never think about that. Paul says, sooner or later, I am absolutely convinced I am going to get what I don't deserve, and that is the glory of God. That's what he's saying. So you don't wake up in the morning and say, oh, now I know I've been such a rotten sinner and I have such guilt and such shame that I know the first time something bad happens is because of sin in my life. Paul says, I don't know what you're thinking about. Your sin has been paid for. 
And you do not live in the expectation of dread, but you live in the expectation of the hope of the glory of God. He goes, well, then he gets into the next expectation, the next exalt, and that's in verse 3. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations. Now, I've done a little bit, spent a little bit of time meditating and thinking on that. If we think that our trials and tribulations and our sufferings are because God is punishing us for our sin, then you will never exalt in your tribulations. Right? I remember those times as a child where my dad would say, go to your room. Uh-oh, I knew what that meant. One time, at least, he said, go to my closet first and get a belt. And then go lean over your bed and wait for me. Do you think I'm exalting in my tribulations at this point? I know there, I, there is a certain dread coming. And I remember opening that closet door and looking at it. It looked like he had a whole store full of belts in there. And I'm just going, I, couldn't, I could not bring myself to reach up and grab a belt. And I went back and leaned over the bed. And my dad said, where's the belt? I couldn't find one, Dad. <laughs> well, I've got one. And he rips it off. That's not Paul's life. He goes, when the bad things of life happen, there are so many reasons why we suffer. I can be suffering because of my own dumb and sinful choices. I can be suffering because of other people's dumb and sinful choices. I could be suffering because I live in a broken, fallen world. But Paul says, I want to tell you something. When the trials, the tribulations come to my life, I do not let my mind go down the road that I am suffering because I am being punished for my sin, which Jesus has already paid for. And that's why he can exalt. If I'm being punished and that's why I'm having... See, Job... Did his ten children die because of his sin? No. God was doing other things. He didn't have any idea what God was doing. But he knew this cannot be because of my sin. And then the last thing that we exalt in, in verse 11, we exalt in God himself. And this is, this is what we have as Christians that nobody else really has. Because what other religion of the world says you're forgiven? And that you do not have to work for anything. You don't have to earn God's love and favor. You have it. There is nothing between you and God. You don't pray. You don't give. You don't fast. You don't practice any form of piety because you're afraid of what's going to happen to you if you don't. What motivates us is God's love for us. And we exalt in God. We don't dread Him. We exalt in Him. God cannot punish us for sin that has been forgiven and remain himself just. Cannot happen. We will never, ever, in all of eternity, get what we deserve for our sins. Because we deserve the lake of fire. That's what our sin deserves. And we will never get what we deserve because we are justified in the sight of God. 
So whatever happens, and I, you know, I have to go through this every time a trial comes, just like anybody else does. It's not a lesson just once learned. All of us, our hearts just jump to, what did I do? God's punishing me for my sin. Discipline us? Yes. Yes, God disciplines His children. And it's not fun when it happens. But it is never, even that discipline is not the full extent of what we deserve. We will never get what we deserve. This woman did not live with that peace in her heart. She did not live with the understanding that justification is through faith in this sacrifice that God makes for us in His Son, and that having received that gift of justification, that we have absolute peace with God. She knew nothing of what I'm talking about. The second issue here is the bigger one. Does God put innocent children to death instead of their parents? I feel like I am, I am trying to, to root something out of people's hearts when I talk on this. Because as I've said, this is the issue where I, I have never received more pushback on anything. It's amazing to me how much people, Christian people, want to believe that God kills children for nothing that they have done. But apparently, a lot of Christians want to believe that because it is very, very hard to move them away from it. So the first thing I do with students is take them to Ezekiel 18. This must be a big enough issue that God said we need to devote an entire chapter of Scripture to it. Because the entire chapter of Ezekiel 18 is focused on this question, does God kill innocent children for things they have not done, as punishment for the sins of the parents. Verse 20 is the summary verse. So if you're looking at it, you can just turn to verse 20. Very clearly, God says, the person who sins will die. The son will not, will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity. Nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. Does it get any plainer than that? I mean, if you were God and you needed to communicate to a bunch of people that think that God kills children in place of their parents, how much plainer could you be than what it says right here in Ezekiel 20? It doesn't happen, it never happens, it is not justice. There was a time, this is not good theology to start with man and argue toward God. Okay, that's backwards. But there is at least one time when Jesus encourages us to do just that. Start with man and argue to God. And Jesus says, which one of you fathers, if your son asks him for a stick, are you going to hand him a snake? Which one of your dads, if your son asks you for a piece of bread, are you going to give him a rock? And then he says this, if you being evil, know how to give good things to your children, how much more your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus starts with evil man and reasons toward a holy God. So I want to do the same thing with this. 
Which one of you, which one of you would kill an innocent child for the sins of the parents? None of us would. And if we being evil would not do this, why would we think our holy, righteous, loving God would? And yet we do. It is an injustice for the innocent to be punished for someone else's sins. It's as, as simple as that. There has only been, in all of mankind's history, there has only ever been one innocent person that God punished for someone else's sins. And that was Jesus Christ. And the reason that was not an injustice is because Jesus wanted to die for us. He was willingly substituted himself for us. He is the only innocent, folks, the only innocent that God has ever put to death for someone else's sins. And he did it willingly. He's the only one. Your child, my children, have never been punished for your sins. Never. Cannot happen. If there's a woman that's addicted to drugs, heroin, she's pregnant, she's going to pass on that heroin addiction to her child. And if the child doesn't receive medical intervention, the child will die. And we don't think, I hope we don't think, God killed that child. That child died because of the choices of the mother. But that child did not die in place of the mother. That child did not die as a substitute for the mother. The child died because of the mom's sinful actions. But God was not killing the child. So 2 Samuel 12, 13 and 14 is the passage that always comes to mind. As soon as I get to this point, there's hands up. I'm going, wait, 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 hands, wait, wait. I know what you're going to, wait, wait. So we're not in school, so you're not raising your hands. I get it. 2 Samuel 12, 13 and 14 is about the baby that David had with Bathsheba. And the baby died because God put the baby to death. Right? Well, we don't read that passage in its context. So if we start in verse 13, 2 Samuel 12, 13, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. Pretty simple. Why did David not die for adultery and murder? Because his sin was taken away. So David cannot be punished. Because the sin has been removed. So if David can't be punished for his own sin, because the sin has been removed, then how in the world can the child die for David when David is not going to die for David? You see? So for whatever reason the child died, the child did not die in place of David. The sin of David and the punishment of David was the punishment was not put on the child. But the child died. And so God says in verse 14, 
However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So this child, it's, I know it, it seems thorny and complicated, I get it. But this I know. Ezekiel 18.20 is not a lie. It is the plainest text in the Bible, and it occurs three times actually in the Old Testament, that the children do not bear the punishment for the father's sin. So that has to be what informs us when we come to these other difficult passages where we're not quite sure what's going on. But God is clear here. David is not being put to death for David's sin. So his son is not bearing the punishment for sin which God has taken away. But nonetheless, there is this factor. Just as I've said with that heroin-addicted mother that her choices can result in consequences for the child. And David's choices have, resu have resulted in consequences for this child. Is God in control of those consequences? Yes, He is. But is God substituting the son for the father? Absolutely not. Another verse that comes up is from um, Ezekiel 34, 7, one of two places where the Ten Commandments is given. And God says in Ezekiel 34, 7, who keeps the loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Well, there you go, Charlie. He's punishing children to the third and fourth generation for the sins of the father. That's not what it says. He is saying the iniquity is of the father is passed on to the children and the grandchildren. He does not say the punishment of the father is being passed down from generation to generation. And why does he say three or four generations? Because that's how many is alive at any given time. My dad, down to his great-grandchildren, is four generations. People used to live in more communal type of settings as families than we live today. So it was only natural to expect that what the sins of that great-grandfather and the way that they were living in such close family relationships is very likely going to influence, if not also be passed on to the great-great-grandchildren. Four generations. He didn't say five or six generations. He's talking about the social impact of sin, the sin itself. He never mentions the word punishment. The punishment of the fathers and the grandfathers and the great-grandfathers is not being given to the children. But you live in a family setting, and what you're guilty of is likely going to be passed on to the kids. That's all he's saying. Sin spreads, and we know that's true. Here's the big thing. And I'm not, I can't say that this thought came to me. It came to one of our German students a few years ago. Germans are always a lot smarter than anybody else in the room. Max would agree. <laughs> He's back there laughing. Yeah. I never made this connection. Took a German to make the connection for me. If we as Christians believe that God kills innocent children in place of the guilty. Are we not saying the same thing that the pagans say who sacrifice their children to the gods? Because see, what do the pagans believe? That God's not going to be happy 
He's not going to remove my sin. He's not going to deal favorably with me unless an innocent is substituted for the sinner. And so every pagan religion has focused on some form of innocent dying for the guilty. Innocent children, virgins, somebody else from another tribe who is guilty of nothing except that I could take them and sacrifice them. This is what we see in the infant sacrifice of Scripture. The belief behind it is that our gods demand an innocent to die in place of us. Again, Jesus was an innocent, but the difference is he willingly gave himself for us. And our God does not demand or take the lives of children in place of the parents. Cannot happen. In the pagan gods, the more, the in, more innocence, the more desirable to the false gods, to Satan. Has anything changed? This is what we're, what, one of the things that we're so troubled us about the spirit of the age that we live in today is we see the world seems to be just hell-bent on destroying the innocence of our children. This is the same spirit of the Old Testament of offering these children to the gods. Today, it's just to rob them of their innocence. In the Old Testament, it was to rob them of their lives. But all in the name of Satan, who wants to destroy the innocent, even in the name of worship. This is not our God. Perish the thought that our God would ever take the life of an innocent child as a substitute for the parent and his sin. God has spoken as clearly to this as he possibly can, and he has said never. Children sometimes die as a consequence of the parent's actions and sins. But no child is punished because of what the parent did. There are other Old Testament examples. I get it. We could just, if we had question and answer, you could, what about Achan? All his family died with him. What about the sons of Saul who were put to death because of what Saul did? I get it. There's so many other passages. But here's the thing. All of those passages in the historical narrative have to be interpreted in light of the clear teaching of God's Word. That is basic hermeneutics 101. The clear passages have to take authority and precedent over the unclear passages. And the clear passage is Ezekiel 18.20. God does not punish children for the sins of the Father. The children will not be put to death for the sins of the Father. Can't be any clearer. We must think about what we are saying and believing about God and reject all thoughts that are unworthy of Him. Our own hearts toward God are at stake. Why do I say that? Because who can truly love a God who kills the innocent in place of the guilty? It's a big deal. And again, I believe in, it's probably in most of us, it is unworthy of God. Isn't it interesting that after all this time and all these miracles, 
when her son dies, the guilt of her sin is there. She's, we don't even know what it is, what her iniquity is, but there's a skeleton in this woman's closet. And every day, in fact, every time she experiences the goodness of God, which is every day, she's being fed, miraculously being fed. There's so many other people in the city and around her that are not being fed. I don't even know how she would have coped with that. But it's, I think it's something like that soldier who is the lone survivor when everybody else in his company is killed. And you, and you have guilt over being alive. When, everybody, when you're experiencing God's goodness every day, Sometimes the goodness of God can just bring to focus how little you deserve it. Guilt, 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 guilt. And so then you live every day thinking sooner or later I am going to get what I deserve. And that takes us back to Romans 5.1. No, sooner or later we're going to get what we don't deserve. That's the truth. I was... Teaching this um, online, Zoom, and um, one of the listeners is a man who has two children who were born um, with a disease that is typically fatal. We've never discussed how he's handling that. But after listening in, and he said, after the third time of me saying, God does not put children to death for the sins of the father, he said it finally hit him. And I didn't know for the last 16, 17 years. That dear brother in Christ has been living every day saying, my children, my boys have this life-threatening disease because of my sin." It's in all of us, and we're unworthy of it. God brings the boy back to life. Elijah brings the boy down to the woman, and the woman says, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. I don't want to over-spiritualize the text, read into it what isn't there, but I think it's proper to relate this to our situation. And that being, the Bible says in Hebrews 9.14 and Hebrews 10.22, that the only thing that can cleanse our conscience is the blood of Jesus Christ. And this woman, I don't know that she didn't get that from seeing the resurrection, but we know the blood of Christ has resulted in His resurrection. And the resurrection, according to Romans 4 and Romans 5, is proof that we are justified. Especially the last verse in Romans 4. The resurrection did not secure our justification. His death did. But the resurrection is proof of our justification. He would not have been raised from the dead if his death had not paid for our sin. So if you don't think your sin's been paid for, then you should have an issue with Jesus being alive from the dead. Because his resurrection is proof that our sins have been paid for. He would not have been raised if, his, if our sins had not been paid for. Got a guilty conscience? We all have things in our lives that we, don't, we just pray, God, I just, just don't let anybody else ever know what I've done. 
And God in His mercy and grace many times just truly hides our sins from others and even causes us to forget our own sins, which is truly grace. But there are things that we would never want anybody to know and we have not been able to forget. And we still beat ourselves up over it, hate ourselves, full of shame, and we would just die of embarrassment if anybody knew. This woman had something like that in her life. And again, God says, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses our conscience. Why would it say that? Unless the blood of Christ cleanses us. No matter what you've done, you are clean. Clean in the sight of God. And God is just saying, accept my statement on you. You are as righteous as Jesus Christ is righteous. Your sin has been removed as far as the east is from the west. He will not bring it up. We had a 90th birthday party for my dad last Sunday. And one of my brothers said, thank you, dad, for never bringing up my sin." And he was, in particular, just talking about one situation where we were hunting when it was a close call and he could have easily shot my dad. And I've told that story many times. I'm just thinking, cause I just, not because I'm bad, rag, ragging on my brother, I just think, man, God's protection. Never looking at it from his side, he hated hearing that story. But all the times I've told that story, it never occurred to me, he hates hearing that story. But he thanked my dad. But you've never once brought up that story. That's what our Heavenly Father does. I don't know, but I'm pretty sure we're not going to call Rahab, Rahab the harlot <laughs> in heaven. And that's how she's known today. I feel bad for her. Rahab who? Oh, Rahab the harlot. I kind of think that's not her name for eternity. God does not bring it up. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. It's not a huge problem, but for some it is, so I'll just mention it. Um, the resurrection of this boy is the first time someone in the Bible is raised from the dead. But in Colossians chapter 1, it says Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. So some people look at that and go, well, how can that be? Well, firstborn from the dead, he's talking about something different than this. Jesus rose from the dead, and he was the first to rise from the dead, never to die again. Whereas this boy and all the other people in the Bible, Lazarus, the widow's son um, in the Gospels, um, Elisha will also raise a boy from the dead. Um, all of these resurrections were followed by another death. They came back to life, but they all died again. Jesus was the first to rise from the dead never to die again. And we will be raised according to His resurrection. Never to die again. So this has been a heavy topic, and my, my plan was not to move on from here, but just to cover this. And it's 15 minutes before the hour. 
But I would hope that this was, is something that has been helpful. Like I said, either it's a very, very important topic or I am very, very wrong. I don't think I'm wrong. All of this scripture that I read just points to God is not an unholy, unjust God. We, we would never punish or kill a child for what that child did not do. Nor will our God. Ezekiel 18, 20. I'll close this in prayer. God, I suspect that virtually every one of us in this room have had the same thoughts, emotions as this dear widow. That our sin is why others are suffering or have even died. Lord, I pray that every thought that is unworthy of you would truly be rooted from our hearts and that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. That we would just thank you, God, that we never have to worry about whether you would punish our children for our sin. You are not that kind of God. That is Satan. That is what he does, not you. I thank you that our sin has been paid for. The certificate of debt against us is canceled. You will never recall our sin. And we cannot be punished for sin that has been paid for. Thank you, God, that you have redeemed us and you have cleansed us from all unrighteousness. We want to praise your holy name for this gift, God, that you've given us. And that we would truly love you, God, for this matchless grace that you have shown us. In Jesus' name, amen.